0: Hi everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com.
1: It is good to be here, and it is good to see you guys. Amen and amen. I'm going to actually ask us to stand one more time. We're going to pray for our pastor um, and his family, and uh, today he was going to be up here bringing this message, uh, but he is not feeling well, but we miss him, and I texted him this morning saying, it's just not the same when you're not here, and uh, we just honor him. We honor his wife, First Lady Jamila, um, and their son, P3, and uh, so let's just pray really quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for our pastor. I thank you for his wife. I thank you for their son. I pray, Holy Spirit, that your hand will continue to be on them. I pray, Lord God, for a quick recovery. I pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, you will continue to use him mightily, uh, Lord God, as he faithfully and humbly uh, serves your body and, and uh, is led by your spirit. I thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Um, I don't know what kind of sleeper you are, If you are a light sleeper, if you are a heavy sleeper, Becca is a heavy sleeper, I am a light sleeper, Um, and I know, like, looking at me, you're like, you're not a light sleeper, (laughs) but trust me, I am. I hear, like, every little noise. Somebody could be cooking bacon three houses down. I will hear it. I will wake up immediately to the smell of that bacon, Um, and that's just how I am, and uh, I don't know how you guys are when it comes to, you know, being woke up. Like, if, uh, you know, when you up Wake up, you're smiling uh, like my daughter Eden. When we go to wake her up, we just say, Good morning, Eden, one little time. And she's up and she's smiling and she's saying, Good morning. Or if maybe you're like my middle child, Adeline, when we go to wake her up, it's like having to shake her. We take her leg and pull her out of the bed, literally, um, and say, You got to get up. And she's angry every morning about it and she's frustrated. But either way, um, what God is saying to us this morning is to wake up. So would you just maybe look to somebody behind you, around you, in front of you, and back of you, to the side of you, and just tell them, hey, wake up, wake up. Just do a nice wake up. Just do, do, do a nice wake up, you know? Don't do a mean wake up. My foster dad used to come in and do one of those mean wakes ups. He'd be like, wake up, Roger. Uh, but don't, don't do one of those. Just a nice, like a nice nudge. I told that to Becca. Just, when time to wake me up, honey, just come and say, you know, good morning, and, you know, even massage my hand a little bit, and say, time to get up, sweetheart, you know? <laughs> wake up. Well, we are in the middle of a series called Dear Inspire, and what we're doing is we're looking at the seven churches in Revelations where Jesus wrote a letter to, and even though those letters were not written to us, they were definitely written for us, and so we are extracting from these letters the principles that the Holy Spirit would have us learn and apply, and what we're asking really is, well, if Jesus were to write Inspire, I wonder what he'd say. If he said, Dear Inspire, I wonder what things we would do that he would give praise to that are noteworthy. I wonder what things that he would say that we would need to be convicted of and challenged in. And and so this has been an interesting and introspective uh, uh, sermon series that uh, for me, I'm excited to go through as we kind of look at all the churches that were in Asia Minor, now modern day Turkey that Jesus spoke to. And uh, as we continue our series, this time we're looking at the church called Sardis in Revelation 3. Now, before I go there, there is a parable uh, called the parable of the fig tree. And uh, basically what it is, is it's a story that Jesus uses. And he says, listen, there's this fig tree that basically from far away looks good, looks healthy. But as you get closer and closer and closer, you begin to realize that it's not as healthy as you think it is. Upon closer uh, inspection, you notice that it actually bore no fruit at all. And I think that that is a great picture of what's happening here in this church. So let's read together Revelation chapter 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who is Jesus, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, Jesus says, I know your works. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you because, God, you are alive. I thank you, Heavenly Father, because your Spirit will help us this morning to hear what it is that you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, guys, so we have four points this morning. You're like, what happened to three points? We have four. You're like, okay, we'll add five more minutes to the message. Don't worry, we'll get there fast. Okay, so four points this morning, and it's this, the reputation, the reality, the resounding warning, and the result. The reputation, the reality, the resounding warning, and the result. Okay, y'all ready for that? Okay, good. Well, I got three more than this morning, so that's pretty, that's pretty good. Okay, number one, <laughs> the reputation. Now listen, Mom and Patty ain't here, Pastor Phil ain't here. Y'all gonna have to just, you know, step it up with the main men's this morning for me. All right, number one, the reputation. All right, Revelation 3, says he says this, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive. See that? You have a reputation. In other words, people in the city know who you are. You have a reputation for what? For being alive, he said, but you are dead. Now, interesting, because as we study this, we see what other teachers and scholars have sort of titled this church, and I want you to hear some of the titles that they say. They, they call this church the dynamic and dead, the decorated coffin, the dying church, the slumbering church, the church of the living dead, And Pastor Alistair Begg puts it this way. He describes this church as a corpse at a wake, right? Dressed up with makeup, but laying lifeless in a casket. Now, out of all of the horrible things that have been said about the church throughout history, nothing can be more devastating than to be called dead by the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ himself. And I think this is significant for us to ponder, because I want to submit that if we're honest, if God wants to put a category for some of us, some of us would not fall under the alive category, but we would fall under the dead category. My brothers and sisters, some of us try to be predicated upon our moral, our moral status, but when it comes to our worship and our witness and our works, they are dead. And it is a horrible thing to serve a living God and be a dead church. It's a horrible thing to serve a living God and be a dead church. I knew you guys would love this picker-up or message. It's so encouraging, right? Anyway. <laughs> Jesus here is, he's portraying himself, he's describing himself as being omniscient. Omniscient, meaning all knowing, right? He is all-knowing. He not only sees their work, but what he sees is the motivation behind their work. He sees what others cannot see. That's how omniscient he is. He sees what others cannot see. And though this church has fooled everyone else, it cannot fool God. So Jesus calls them out because there was a difference between their reputation and their reality. Their reputation for being a lively church, but their reality for being dead. Reputation. Reputation has to do with what others are saying, what others think about you, right? That's the reputation. It's, It's solely based on outer appearances. Reputation is the difference between what others think, while reality is what God knows reputation is what others think while reality is what God knows and this principle remains true whether we're talking about institutional or individual right at an institutional level or an individual level the reality is is that our reputation is what everybody else says about us the reality is what God says about us right that's our reputation versus our reality And Jesus addresses this church as an institution, as a whole. In this letter, what's interesting is he is more direct than he is detailed. If you notice the other letters, he would start kind of mentioning some of the stuff that was going on there, right? He would talk about, like, you know, false teachers. He would talk about sexual immorality. He would talk about idolatry. So when he was ready to sort of challenge them, after he gave praise about some of the great things that they were doing, he says, but here's an area that you need to work on. He was very detailed in what they were doing, but, but not here. Not here. And so it draws us to a bigger question of how. how. Did they manage to look alive? How were they able to fool everyone else, including themselves? Because you have to know that, that if they heard, like, Here, here's a letter from Jesus to us addressed to this church, that church must have been like, oh, this is going to be a great letter. Everybody loves us. Everybody's talking about what we're doing. I mean, and we're a great church. We're a booming church. Can you imagine when the letter was read and they found out that Jesus was calling them dead? Wow. My goodness. See, we have a tendency to measure success based on what we see, don't we? That's how we define success, based on how things look. And if things look like they're going great, we must think they're successful. If a company looks like it's going great, if somebody's Instagram posts look like they're going great, then we must think, oh man, these people are successful. Look at what's going on. Because that's how we define success based on how things look, on what we see. And our, and our flesh can't help that. But First Samuel reminds us, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Right? Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God does what? Looks at the heart. So when we look at this church in Sardis, we see a packed church. We see a lively church, a popping church, Right? What we see as success, Jesus sees as dead. And and, and maybe this happened in in, in this church. Maybe this happened in Sardis. Let's speculate for a little bit because maybe they became too confident in their flesh, like we all do at times. Maybe they conflated God's blessings with beautiful buildings, with busier programs, with, 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 with bloated budgets. And we look at that church and say, oh, God must be doing something there. Right? And we do the same thing. We pass by churches and they have beautiful buildings and they have incredible programs and they have state-of-the-art equipment and the most amazing worship teams. And we're like, oh, God must be moving there. Yeah. We look at Inspire and we see everything that's going on. And some of us are like, oh, maybe God's really moving there. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps they began to pursue external markers of success because it attracted the praise of men and satisfy the lust of the flesh. See, I wonder, how does a church define its scoreboard? In order to make points, what does a church define as a win? Is it to have hundreds and hundreds of people come in and have great programs and have all this stuff? Is that what success looks like? Is that what it looks like? Look at this quote. Dead churches become organizations rather than organisms. See that? Businesses with CEOs looking out for the bottom line rather than the bodies with caring shepherds looking out for the flock. Dead churches cling to their riches, rituals, and reputations at the expense of their relationship with others and with Christ. Wow. Ultimately, how churches really die is this. They deny the authority of Scripture because they prioritize the praise of men. They tolerate sin and compromise because they prioritize the praise of men. They exchange the gospel proclamation for prosperity teaching because they prioritize the praise of men. You see, because churches prioritize the praise of men, they stop pursuing holiness and stop preaching the exclusivity of Jesus. And as a result, we can look alive to everybody else except God. Wow. We can look alive to everybody else except Jesus. It's a sobering reminder. The church that everyone loved, the church that everybody was talking about, the church that everybody was approved of was condemned by Jesus. In fact, what's interesting is that when you look at the other churches, he had commendation for every church. He had praise for every church, not this church. He didn't say one good thing about them. Wow. Isn't that crazy? They were dead. How could he say something good? They were dead. In fact, I wonder when it comes to choosing churches, what our list of a good church is. When we start looking for churches to be a part of, I wonder what it is that we have on our checkoff list. I wonder what program they have to have, how their worship team has to sound, how their pastor has to dress. All these, I, I just wonder what it is. I wonder when you look at the list, are you looking more for what you're going to give out of it rather than what you can serve to? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I wonder what your list is compared to Jesus' list. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And what's true for the institution is true for the individual. Pastor Phil says, dead churches produce dead members who think they are safe in Christ, but they are gravely mistaken. Dead churches produce dead members who think they are safe in Christ, but they are deadly mistaken. Because it's not just their reputation, but behind their reputation, there's a reality. Number two, the reality. Look at this. Revelation verses two and three. Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you receive and heard. Keep it and repent. Keep it and repent. So if you notice here, Jesus is mixing his metaphors. He talks about a dead church, but then he also talks about this church that is in coma, this sleeping, slumbering church. And when you are in those situations, there's only two directions you can go. You can continue to thrive in its tomb like a decorated coffin, or you can heed the prescription of supernatural revival of supernatural revival. Now, when I say the word revival for any of you that kind of grew up in any other church tradition, depending on the tradition of church you grew up in, you will have a different picture of what revival means to you. But here, what I want to press in your mind is actually Jesus's definition of revival. Because what's interesting is Jesus gives us five ways here on how to have supernatural revival. And yet, there is a humanly practical grace that is applied. Uh Do you see that? Okay, so let's do this. Number one, the first thing he says is wake up. That's the first thing. He, he, He says wake up. I'm reminded of the time where Jesus called Lazarus out of his tomb and with a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Remember that? I can imagine Jesus calling out to his dead church, Sardis, wake up, shaking them, nudging them, maybe taking their legs and pulling them out of bed like I have to do with Adeline. Wake up, right? With a loud voice full of authority and power, I can see dry bones beginning to shake. Things beginning to come awake. You begin to rub their eyes. Sardis is beginning to wake up. Jesus says, open your eyes. Awaken from your stupor. You've been callous, indifferent, comfortable, complacent, even numb for too long. I wonder this morning when we were in worship, if any of you felt callous, indifferent, comfortable, complacent, or even numb during worship. Wow. So the first step is Jesus saying, wake up. Notice that the first step is God's voice speaking, calling, commanding. Isn't it interesting how when it comes to revival and really anything in Christianity, God is the initiator. He's always the initiator. He runs after you before you'll ever run after him. He chases you before you'll ever chase him. He loves you before you'll ever love him. He is always the initiator. He came down in the cool of the day and walked in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? He's always the initiator. Number two, he says, strengthen what remains. Interesting how some things in this church were dead, while other things were simply on life support. Life support. After opening their closed eyes and awaking them from their coma, God is calling them to take inventory. Notice that. He he wants to take inventory. He said, look at what remains and strengthen that. See that? Look around, take note. And what needs to go, go. What can stay, stay. And he, and he talks about these few names, this, these remnant of people that are there in Sardis, in this church, in the city of Sardis. If there are a few people that are faithful there that are now being allowed to take over and to reprioritize what's important, the value structure of this church. And I wonder when, when, when this began to happen, I wonder what was all of a sudden priority. I wonder if maybe what was priority before this happened and what was neglected changed spots. I wonder if they began to get rhythms of life back again in that church. Gospel centrality back again in that church. Strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. You know, when I see that, that gives me hope. Because there's something that is there that remains that can be strengthened. And then this next one is really good. Step three and step four are kind of put together because he says, remember and keep. Uh Remember and keep. What are they supposed to remember? What are they supposed to keep? Well, Jesus says, remember what you heard and keep what you received. In other words, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling the faithful few there to remember when the church was first planted, to remember when it was not about pleasing men or putting on a show or attracting crowds, but it was about platforming Christ and his gospel and what he has done, not what they have done. Because listen, a dying church is a forgetting church. In fact, a dying Christian is a forgetting Christian. And he's calling us not to forget. He's calling us to remember. He says, never forget how the Lord and what the Lord gave you. Never forget how the Lord forgave you when you were unforgivable. Listen, loved ones, never forget how the Lord loved you when you were unlovable. Never forget how the Lord brought you out of slavery, delivered you from Satan and sin, parted the Red Sea, gave food to eat and water to drink when you were wandering in the wilderness of your self righteousness. Don't forget that while you were still enemies of God, He died for you. You know why we fall asleep? You know why we grow callous? You know why we get too comfortable? Is because we have forgotten about the goodness of God. The goodness of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son. We need to remember it. We need to keep it. We need to remember what Jesus Christ has done. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Nice. And then finally, step five is we need to repent. Now, this is different than saying, I'm sorry. That's an apology. Jesus isn't asking for an apology. He's asking for repentance. Repentance means that you are turning around, that you are now going a different direction. You were headed one way and now repent. It, 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 does, it wasn't necessarily a religious word when it was first used, but it, it means to literally like you're turning around. That's what repenting means. And, and it's taking a different direction, you see. You, you walk one way, you live one way, you behave one way, you think one way, and now you repent and you begin to think differently. You begin to behave differently. You begin to do differently, you see. You see what I'm saying? Repentance. It's an acknowledgement that when you drive, you tend to drive into dead ends. And that we need rerouting in the name of Jesus. We need rerouting in the name of Jesus. And we're always having to repent. Every day we have to repent. Every day our hearts need to be redirected. Every day we need the spiritual GPS of the Holy Spirit to come in and say, "Uh uh-uh. Right? Right? Somebody cut you off. Maybe the restaurant waiter served that other family even though you came in first. That ticks me off. I had to be like, Lord Jesus, help direct me a different direction. Right? Or we begin to feel we're superior to somebody. We begin to feel like somebody's sin is worse than ours and they need Jesus more than we do. That somehow we're spiritually better or we've made it somehow. That somehow we're done and as if Jesus is there saying, okay, well, you don't even need me. I guess you made it. You're good. Repent. And if we don't do these things, what things? Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember, keep, repent. If we don't do these things, then there is a a warning, a resounding warning. Number three, the resounding warning. Look at this, Revelation 3, verse 3, he says this, if you will not wake up. How many of y'all ever refuse to wake up? Oh, yeah. Like no matter how hard you, like you're just not waking up. I swear our daughters do this when we drive home, like and it's late. And I don't even think they're really asleep. I think like two minutes before we pull in, they just kind of, you know, pretend they're dead weight. And sometimes they just refuse to, like they want to be carried. And I'm like, girl, you 11 now. <laughs> like, no, you, like you waking up. Like you're or they'll like fall asleep on our, on our bed, you know, and used to, when they were little, you know, you'd pick them up and you can't, I'm like, Mm-mm, come on. Dragon and everything. I'm like, you can sleepwalk to your bed. Thank you, Jesus. I'm too old for this. Used to, we could all fit on the bed. Glory. The Lord has extended my territory, Jesus. Yes. Added a few pounds. Ain't no room. If we don't do it, notice he says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Wow. Wow. See, throughout its history, Sardis was known as an impenetrable city. It was, it's built on a high mountain with really only one way in and one way out. And so it enjoyed the reputation of being unbreakable and unbreachable. The city of Sardis was actually pretty significant in its time. Because not only was it built on a hill, but because it was, because of this position, it had military power. But even though it had military power, what's interesting is two times in its history... Its enemies were able to come in and infiltrate the city. One time it came up a side of a ramp that it found. And when they came into the city, they noticed that the city was unguarded. See, the city was unguarded because they assumed that no one could come in. That no one could breach this. They were unguarded because they assumed that no enemy could get inside. They were unguarded because they made certain assumptions. So they put their guard down and they were sleeping on the watch. They thought their prominent position could keep them safe. And I think that's what Jesus meant when he's talking specifically to the church here in Sardis. Because if we look at them historically, they were, the, the church that was in Sardis was an incredible church. It was actually a huge church about the size of a football field. That's a big church, you guys. That's huge, right? Incredible church. And in the past, they had done great things. And because of that, they began to rest on their morals. The fact that they were good people. Oh, well, see, Pastor Roger, I'm a good person. I'm kind. I'm nice to others. I want others to be happy. I'm a nice and good person. The problem with that is that, of course, as we know, heaven wasn't made for good people and hell wasn't made for bad people. And we know this. Right. That's not what the Bible says. doesn't say that anywhere. The Bible says that heaven was made for those that are alive, and hell is made for those that are dead. In fact, there are some very bad people that will be in heaven because they repented, they call on the name of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus covered them, washed them clean, and they now stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, with, uh, worthy and innocent because of the blood of Jesus, not because they were good people. See, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. You see. And so because they think that what they've done, they were impenetrable. And now Jesus says, because you have this false assumption, you think you're better than you actually are. You think you're in a better place, in a better position, in a better standing on a good course than you actually are. There was this movie, I don't know if you guys remember it, small little low budget movie happened in 1997 called The Titanic. Remember that movie? (laughs) And it's an American epic romance, and uh, it was directed by James Cameron. And what he did was he incorporated historical accuracy with fictional aspects. It's a great movie, and it's basically on the account of the sinking of the Titanic with stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. And what they do is is both of them are part of different social classes. But despite that, they end up falling in love aboard this ship that is on an ill-fated maiden voyage. And so you guys know the story. You know, here's the people, and, 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 and they're heading uh, on the ocean there. And all of a sudden, an iceberg hits and scrapes up the side of the Titanic, causing the Titanic to begin to fill up with water. It eventually breaks in half. The whole thing begins to sink. People rush to lifeboats. We know that there just wasn't enough lifeboats for everybody. Nobody thought that it would sink, so there just wasn't enough. And in the movie, what we have is we end up having Jack and Rose... Uh, uh, who that was the name of the characters, and Rose ends up on this pretty big piece of floating wood, and Jack ends up kind of there. I'm laughing, but I, it's actually a sad part, but anyway, um, and he's kind of floating there on the side of the wood, and they're talking and, you know, uh, confessing their love to each other, and anyway, Jack dies, and she, you know, lives, and, and, and of course, you know, the, the debate here is, couldn't Jack have just fit like, couldn't Rose have just scooted over just, like, two inches and made room for Jack? Like, Jack did not have to die, y'all, you know? And they've actually, like, it is so funny because they've actually, like, drawn out the piece of this particular wood and they've, and they've taken pictures of different positions that if the director really wanted to, like, I think, you know, everybody like, they should have put Rose on, like, a smaller piece of wood, you know? <laughs> now, even though the, the story between them two was fictional, there are facts. Because the fact is, over 1,500 men, women, children, and babies died. Died. One of the survivors was Frederick Fleet. He was on duty in the crow's nest helping keep watch. When being interviewed, he said this. He said, we could have seen it, the iceberg, We could have seen it a bit sooner. When asked how much sooner, he responded, well, enough to get out of the way. What happens when the watchmen, when the guards aren't attentive? See, this city was taken over twice due to the lack of vigilance on behalf of the watchmen. And what Jesus says, the promise that he gives, you ready for the promise? The promise that he gives are two of them. First, he says this. He says, for those who don't do this, here's the result. Jesus will come and breach the church and destroy the church the same way the enemies breach the city all because of the carelessness of the guards. Us. Us. And I, I could see why they didn't think that their guards needed to be on high alert, right? Because what's interesting about this church compared to all the other churches that we've read about in the, past weeks to, in the past weeks leading up to here is this, is that if you notice every church was either being attacked by the culture or by Satan. Some were by both. Either the culture or by Satan, some by both. This particular church wasn't being attacked by culture or Satan. Or Satan. They were not a threat to the pagan culture's way of living, nor were they a threat to hell. And let me just say this as a pastor, a church that does not make hell nervous makes me nervous. A church that does not make hell nervous makes me nervous. You see. And so what happens? What happens if you say, okay, well then what happens if we do wake up? What happens if we do remember? What happens if we do grab on and hold on? And what happens if we do repent and we we do all these things? What happens if we strengthen what remains? What What happens when we do these things that Jesus happened? What's the result of that? Well, here it is, number four, the result. Look at this, verses four through five, it says this. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The ones who conquer will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. See, here's the result, is number one, you get clean clothes. You have access to heaven's exclusive cloth, robes of righteousness that have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb, according to Revelation twenty two fourteen. There's nothing that you and I can do to wash away our sin, sins, nothing. Those stains are there and there is no good works. There is no being kind enough or good enough or nice enough or praying enough or memorizing your Bible enough or giving enough or attending enough or serving enough. Or that. None of that can do that. Y'all understand that, right? None of that can do that. None of that. There is no Clorox. There is no bleach. There is no laundry detergent. There is no shout. There is no none of that that can get that out. The only thing that can do it are robes dipped in Christ's blood. The only thing that can make us clean and new are the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I grew up in an old school Pentecostal church, and my great-grandmother used to sing songs like this. Have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you faithfully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white?" as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you living each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? So the first thing we get are clean clothes. Jesus' clothes, and he covers us with them. But next, what you need to know is there's a guest list. And the Bible says from this guest list that you, your name is put on it. Yeah. Your name is put on it. And you have to understand this isn't written in, in pencil, but this is written in permanent ink. Yeah because he says that he will not blot it out. He will not erase it. I don't know about you, but that makes me happy church because what that means is there is no demon in hell. Satan himself does not have the power to come and erase my name out of the book of life. There is nothing that anything, any witch, any curse, any problem, any sin, any situation that can come in and erase my name from the book of life. And if you're a Christian, that goes for you too. What you need to know is once your name has been written down in that book of life, he does not go back erase it. It's not like he says, oh, on Monday you did that sin. Well, cross, 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 And then on Tuesday, oh, okay, you prayed some more. Well, I'll write it in again. And then Wednesday comes along, and Oh, I looked at that pornography. Cross, 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 cross. Oh, I lied. Cross, cross, cross. Oh, oh, I got mad. Cross, cross, cross. Oh, I'm dealing with some sort of depression. Cross, cross, cross. Oh, okay, now I'm feeling happy. Right, 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 right. He doesn't do that. But the minute that the ink touches the page of the book of life, the minute that you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this better get somebody excited. You need to know that he never comes in and he never blocks. It out. he never erases it but you are loved through and through and through and your name is eternally there wow you know what that should do that should humble us to see our names should humble us because not a single one of us deserves it wow the next thing he does is the Bible says he gives a shout-out. Anybody here still listen to the radio, like music on the radio, like the actual radio? Anybody? Just raise your hand. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Three. <laughs> yeah. Well, used to, you could do like these shout-outs. I remember like, you know, you'd call into the radio station. Anybody remember doing this? And, and you could like dedicate a song or maybe even do a shout-out on the radio to like your boo or whatever. You know, so I remember doing this. Junior high high school, you call up and you give all your girlfriends names and stuff, and you know what I'm saying? And they start playing all these songs, and you know what I mean? Or you're sitting there waiting, you know, and you're listening to your local radio station and, and you're waiting for, you know, for, for 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 that special person to dedicate a song to you, and they do, and you get so excited. Woo, Cause there's a shout out. There, there's something about it, right? That feels great. There's something about being in front of a people that that you that are highly esteemed and they show you love and they recognize you. There's something about being recognized, isn't there? Maybe at your job. Maybe your boss goes and recognizes you for something in front of all the other staff and employees. It feels good, doesn't it? Of course it does. Of course it does. Public recognition is highly prized. In fact, so much so that Sardis was willing to portray its love, Jesus Christ, for the recognition of men. Wow. What you need to understand is that you're already recognized. And what you need to understand is that if you do these things that Jesus says that what happens is he will give you a shout out. He will will profess your name. Did you notice that? Public recognition. See, to those whose names never reached great acclaim on earth, Jesus will recognize your name. To those who were never recognized by the popular or the powerful, to those little churches with little budgets, who names you and I will never know. You have to understand, they will be recognized for all the churches who weren't the coolest or the trendiest, for all the pastors who will never be on TV or YouTube or, Snap- or, or, or a Snapchat. What is it called? Snapchat? All of that, right? None of that, right? For those who don't get 25 likes on Instagram, Jesus will recognize you. For all the churches and its members that were rejected by people because they were faithful to God, Jesus says, I got you. Because earthly reputation will never compare to divine popularity. See, Jesus says that I will confess your name in front of my Father and all of the hosts of heaven. You know what's interesting is Christians... Christians, what we, when we think of, of, of heaven, we, we have this picture in our mind, don't we, of us kind of standing there before some sort of judge, God or angel or whatever, but something there, there's pearly gates, right? Don't we, don't we see this? And, and something happens, I don't know, maybe, maybe like there's a, a view of our life or, or I don't know, something like that. That's just how we kind of see it and God's kind of judging. But the point is, is that we see ourselves standing there alone, But do you know, as a Christian, you're not standing there alone. But Jesus is standing there with you. And the Bible says he's professing your name to the Father. He's showing the Father that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He gives you a shout out. He confesses and professes your name, you see. Your name. Wow. I wonder, church, I wonder if us here at Inspire, if we have allowed ourselves to be lulled asleep by the white noise of this world. I don't mean outwardly, of course, but, but, but inwardly, in our souls. As I get ready to bring this message to a close, I just wonder, have we allowed the guards of our heart to go to sleep? Proverbs 4.23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. Why, why would the Bible tell us to guard our heart unless there was a potential for it to be attacked? Guard your heart. Let me, uh, let me ask you this. Is our worship, is our works, is our witness dead? Has our church become too cozy Have we adopted a model of inoffensive Christianity that plays loosely with God's word? Have we turned the gospel inward to meet only our needs and our wants and our desires, but we forget about a lost world and a lost people that suffer around us that need the love of Jesus? Have we become nominal Christians, meaning Christians in name only, but in no other way? Or do you remember? Do you remember? Because let me just say this. Whenever you forget, and we forget a lot, don't we? But whenever we forget about God, he never forgets about us. Not once. Even though we forget about him all the time, every day, there are certain things that we do. And we forget. We forget what he saved us from. Some of us aren't even fully aware of what he saved us from. Some of us have grown up in church all of our lives and we still don't get it. And God is calling us to remember. And the beautiful thing though, is that when we forget, he still remembers. Are our souls in a deep slumber? Would you stand to your feet this morning? I wonder if we're honest. If you could say, you know what, Pastor Roger, yeah. Yeah, if I'm honest, I I do. I feel dry. I feel spiritually dead. I feel spiritually asleep. I'm not invigorated. I'm not woken up. And I need the Holy Spirit to come and to shake me again. I need to wake up. I need to remember. I need to look at what remains and strengthen it. And I get it. I get it. It's easy to fall asleep sometimes. In fact, falling asleep, sometimes that's the easy way to deal with everything that we're dealing with. Sometimes it's easy to deal with that compared to the pain and the hurt that we've been through, the disappointment and the frustration, the anger and the confusion, all of those things that are constantly coming into your heart. And sometimes we're just so tired that just falling asleep is easy. But Jesus is coming. And I don't know if he's doing to you like I can do with Eden and just come in and give a little nudge and say, wake up. Or maybe he's coming to you like I have to do with Adeline, and he's grabbing you by your foot and he's pulling you out of that bed. I just wonder if Jesus were to write a church to inspire, if he would say, dear inspire, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Lord Jesus, we need his help. Would you respond this morning?
0: Come on. Let's just praise his name. Declaring he's worthy. Declare it today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Come on. Rest in his goodness. He's here with us. Let's sing it. I can wait for eternity. Join the song. They're already Singing, Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. Just bow down before your throne. See your face, I'll cry out because you're holy. I can't wait for eternity Join the song there are already- Sing worthy, 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 worthy
1: Lord. Heavenly Father, for you are worthy, God.
0: Worthy. In fact, worthy, we cannot fully articulate Lord. your worth.
1: But Heavenly Father, we are here and we don't have much to give, but what we give is yours Heavenly Father help us Lord God to wake up to take inventory to strengthen what remains to remember and to keep and to repent Heavenly Father I pray because some of us this morning, our spirits were in a deep coma. And I pray that this morning that those, th- those of us that are in here who, who can testify to that reality that God, we will be able to say, Lord, wake us up. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be able to say, dear inspire. I see you and you are alive. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have an amazing week. God bless you. See you guys next week.